You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuhu. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi wa kafa. Wa salatu wa salamu ala ibadil ladhina astafa. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi. Wa man wala wa man tabi'ahum bi ihsanin ila yawmil jaza. Respected listeners and all our guests and uh, people out there listening uh, to this edition of Legal Eagle on Marcus Sahaba, Voice of the Ahlul Sunnah, with uh, me, your host, uh, Ibrahim Smith. And uh, tonight, inshallah, I think that uh, everyone has anticipated that we will be discussing uh, the ICJ case that South Africa, uh, you know, took uh, the Zionist state, uh, the apartheid state of Israel to court. Uh, for genocidal cases, etc., and all these other things that has been happening in and around it. So, inshallah, tonight we'll be clarifying a lot of these things with our esteemed uh, panel, uh, Hafiz Advocate Firoz Boda, who needs absolutely no introduction. I'm sure that he's been on the airways uh, before, especially on this particular platform. And uh, he will be joined with uh, Yusuf Dokarat as well. Uh, and he also needs no introduction because they are the duo. They are always together. What you don't know about uh, Hafiz, uh, advocate Firoz Boda, is that he is also the king of old people. He never ever told me I had to find out by other people that he is the master and the king of old perfume. So uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed him also, you know. And then, of course, our man from the MSA, the king of the MSA, uh, way back and even today, uh, Ed, um, attorney Yusuf uh, Dokrat. Uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. Uh, Hafiz Firoz Boda. Inshallah, that uh, we will start with you. Wa alaikum salam. How how are you all doing this fine, beautiful evening? Alhamdulillah, Mufisar. Uh, I prefer now to be called an Atarwala before. Uh, <laughs> if you don't mind. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. I, I actually added Hafizah because that is the actual title that the Quran precedes everything. The Deen of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala precedes everything. You know, so that's why I say uh, Hafiz. Advocate uh, Firoz Bouda, and don't forget the Sahih part, uh, because uh, you're officially inducted into the uh, alumni of uh, the great Hufad. So, gee, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, so uh, I up getting into the th- uh, thick of things, you know. So uh, we have to, uh, first and foremost, uh, discuss the ICJ uh, uh, outcomes today. Uh, people have their own thoughts, we have our own thoughts, we don't know law, we don't know secular law. So uh, why did South Africa approach the ICJ in the first place? Uh, if you can just enlighten us, please. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So let me just uh, tell you first some background, uh, and then uh, I will give you some what I think the political motive was, and Yusuf can add to it. So you have, you have two international courts which have separate jurisdiction. You have the ICJ, International Court of Justice, which is a court created by the United Nations. And then you have the International Criminal Court, which is a separate court, which is a court created by a treaty of a number of nations, which is called the ICC. They are two different courts with different jurisdictions. So the South Africa uh, uh, laid a complaint to both courts. Now, what's the difference between the two courts? The, the one court, the, the ICJ, which ruling we're discussing now, that is a creature of the UN. Uh, their, their 
decisions have binding force between member states in both Israel and South Africa, a member of the UN, but they have no police or enforcement mechanism. So in order to enforce the uh, judgments of the ICJ, only the Security Council can enforce uh, judgments of the IC, ICJ. So if there's non-compliance, you must go to the Security Council. And obviously we know America sits in the Security Council, so anything that will happen to enforce this will be vetoed. Uh, the, the second way to enforce ICJ judgments is, and, and, and there isn't much law on it, but a local court could enforce this judgment. So say, for example, uh, Israel here was ordered to stop genocide. I'm just, we'll go to the details of the order. And a, and a military commander who's committing genocide comes here. This uh, South Africa can probably arrest him on the strength of this and take make, uh, uh, domestic uh, measures against that person. By contrast, the International Criminal Court, that focuses on uh, on genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, and that focuses on individuals. That's where you arrest individuals and you try them for war crimes like Slobodan, Milosevic, and all of these other criminals. So that's the difference between the two institutions. Uh, so why did South Africa uh, go to court uh, uh, in terms of this? So one is, I think that they've always been, as a, prince, as a matter of principle, they've always been uh, uh, for a part of the Palestinian cause, not, not in its entirety. They don't support jihad in the way we support jihad as Muslims, but yeah. they, they support some measure of resistance in accordance with their own principles and, and, and policies, which are really human rights uh, uh, focused. Uh, so, so one could argue perhaps they were taking a principal position. But, but we've been asking South Africa, uh, and when I say we, uh, the Muslim Lawyers Association, Yusuf and I are both part of that, and also Association yes. of Muslim Professionals uh, of South Africa. So uh, the MLA has brought several cases from 2009 right to the current against Israel. From the Gaza war, we've launched, uh, we launched a Gaza docket against uh, Zippy Levni. We yes. launched a docket against Shimon Perez. We had two cases taken to the African Union. We launched the Al-Aqsa docket in 2020, when, remember when they were bombing the Al-Aqsa mosque and killing people, uh, uh, and South Africa did absolutely nothing. We yes. produced evidence at that time in the Gaza docket of uh, uh, over 70 South African citizens fighting in the military. None of them were arrested. Nothing happened. So why did South Africa now act at the time it acted? Now, I believe... There's a, there's a political reason why it did so, and that relates to BRICS. You will recall that the BRICS summit happened in South Africa. Oh, and just before sorry. the BRICS summit, the uh, a warrant of arrest was issued by the ICC against President Vladimir Putin. With the result that President Vlad Vladimir Putin could not attend the BRICS summit, because if he did, South Africa would have been obliged to arrest him, and if they didn't, one or other human rights organizations would have gone to court and the court would have been obliged to issue an order for Mr. Putin's arrest. So, uh, so they were caught in this quandary. So what did they do in retaliation? I think the timing of it was that BRICS had said, I, I got no proof, I'm speculating. BRICS had sat down together and said, look, 
we need to we need to expose the duplicity of this ICC because they don't act against Israel. South Africa, you recall, at one stage wanted to withdraw from the, uh, the treaty because yes, of the duplicity yes. of the court. And there's no question the court is duplicitous. One can't argue against that position. So I think uh, I think that it is a BRICS decision for the complaint first to be leveled against the at, at the ICC. Uh, and uh, South Africa requested the ICC to take urgent steps in December already, and the ICC has done absolutely nothing. The, so the prosecutor is still sitting and deliberating on whether to do something. So then uh, the, the opportunity also came where some law professors put out the idea that the Genocide Convention is probably another route to go. You can go to the ICJ, to the UN court, and you can ask for interim measures, as was done against Myanmar uh, by Gambia. And, and South Africa and Israel are both uh, party to the UN. So they then decided uh, to, to access the UN court, uh, to uh, the ICJ, and they alleged genocide. Now, genocide, I think Yusuf can come in here. Uh, there's a problem with... With, with, with the standard of proof of genocide. And I think let me let, let Yusuf talk about this Gee. angle here because he, he can add something to it. But that's my reason why I think they acted at the time they acted. Okay, inshallah, very, very good, because I was unsure also that I thought of it as a political start because of the upcoming elections uh, that we will have in South Africa, and that's why they're trying uh, to lobby for votes. But uh, Yusuf, if you can uh, add any detail or any uh, clarity uh, to the above, inshallah, it will be much appreciated. Assalamu uh, thanks for calling Yusuf. You could also call me Atarwala's friend if you like. <laughs> definitely, definitely, because I mean, you're always together. Uh, in fact, we are always together. And uh, for those people who do not know that uh, these are the same people uh, that were responsible for reopening the Masajid uh, during uh, those dirty uh, COVID uh, days. They were working behind the scenes. They were working tirelessly in uh, having the houses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened, uh, you know, after a, a group of people from South Africa went on and uh, complied with uh, government regulations. Uh, so these were the brave, strong people. And up till today, alhamdulillah, and I'm always with them that uh, you know they're still working and uh, doing the utmost best to serve the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may Allah always guide and protect them because it's very difficult to find people uh, in a pro in their professional capacity uh, that still makes time to serve the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Yusuf if you'd care to, to, to latch on to that or, or add to uh, what uh, Hafiz Ab has uh, uh, said now G Jim Sab Laid out of context very well. I just want to add a few things. Um, the first is, you, you know, to understand that that these things don't occur contextually; they occur within the context of uh, north-south politics, east-west politics, and and he's raised the issue of BRICS, and it certainly is something that we need to think about. But also, the, the United Nations as an institution um, is, is is a failing institution or a failed institution. Uh, it's known to have been dominated by Western imperialist countries. Uh, there, there have been lots of uh, criticisms leveled against uh, the institution itself. From an Ummah point of view, uh, I mean, there are very serious concerns that we as an Ummah must have about the kind of uh, authority that the United Nations actually has over, over Muslim lands. 
and, and you know that's that's a discussion for another day, but, but it's something that we need to be thinking about as well. So, so I think South Africa finds itself in the midst of that kind of political power play. So, it breaks aside. It's also a discontent uh, amongst African nations with the dominance of of Western imperialist powers, and and using these institutions is a way of leveling playing fields. I mean, I mean, it does give status. Uh, it shows solidarity. And, and, and you know, Mufti Firoz and to the listeners. Yeah. It's not, it's not our function to second-guess the knee of individuals. We, we, we're speculating at a kind of broad political level. Um, and, and people may agree or disagree with us. Uh, but these are, these, are, these are the factors that we need to consider because one of the issues that's been of particularly concern for us is the way in which the Ummah in South Africa have reacted to this. And there's been a, a remarkable naivety uh, at... Uh, that is displayed by the Ummah in relation to, to how they understand what, what, what took place uh, at the ICJ and what unfolds politically. So, so this discussion is ready to try and give context to what is taking place, that people are not hoodwinked into thinking that the South African government is pro-jihad and the lawyers in robes are actually mujahideen and all of that nonsense that you hear. <laughs> it really has got nothing to do with that. Uh, there are there are sound political reasons from a political left point of view why South Africa would take the position that it did. The second is South Africa is known to be committed to what I understand is referred to as multilateralism, and that is a, to to respect international conventions. So, so they, as a government, pride themselves on on trying to be uh, an in, uh, a state that, that that upholds international law, and 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 something like this, of course, catapults the status. Uh, of South Africa in relation to that power block and, and, and the respect for multilateralism. Uh, and then this is what what you've touched on is, is is perhaps the more concerning thing, and that is how whatever may have motivated the South African government from doing what it did, how agents of political parties have exploited it, uh, exploited this to try and uh, advance their own narrow political interests in the 2024 upcoming election. And, and I think that's been fairly cynical for me. Uh, and it's something that the Muslims have to consider very seriously, uh, is, is we must not allow ourselves to be manipulated to a point where uh, Palestinian blood, which is, which is uh, Muslim blood, which is sacred, is actually just smeared on, on campaign posters. Uh, this is really not what this was meant to be, and I I caution those agents of various political parties uh, from using that, and I caution the Ummah uh, from from being naive enough to fall for that nonsense, because it's cheap politicking and we must not allow that to happen. Um, And then, Mufti, I may just, as Firoz mentioned, the issue of genocide, and I I think we, we discussed it a bit further, but the question of genocide is important because it's a term that got thrown about, and look, we need to understand that in, in the political movements, people come up with phrases um, and they stick. They have, they have certain meanings, the people who, who start the phrases or the slogans have a certain idea in mind and it latches on. Um, so, so we come from the era, Mufti, you will come from the era of the 80s and the 70s of the Free Mandela and so on. Yes. Those, are, those are catchy phrases, they, they, they have certain meanings. Now, genocide seems to now become synonymous with what is taking place uh, in the land of Sham, in the land of Quds. And, and whilst on the one hand, uh, it's, it's been used to mobilize people, 
I think we just have to be very careful as Muslims that we don't raise the bar for what we consider zulm to genocide. Hmm. Um, in, in, and what I mean by that, and, I, and I'd really like the listeners to give thought to this, Mufti, and for those who could yes. obviously, uh, you know, have your comments to it. But the zulm is not the fact that it's genocide. The zulm is because they dare to spill the blood of one Muslim. The zulm is because they ride roughshod over the rights of Muslims. They they close uh, Masjid al-Aqsa. They make it difficult for people to attend the third holiest, uh, the third haram of Islam. Uh, they they are a state of zulm. Mm. And so, when genocide is a is a technical meaning, it is a legal meaning, and it's being thrown about in the political arena and even in the in the religious arena. You ask the, the layperson what's happening in Palestine, so there's a genocide. Now, if ultimately this institution called the ICJ finds that actually it isn't genocide, then what do you say? Do you say, oh, okay, sorry, we were wrong, so Israel was okay? No. That bar is not the correct bar. Uh, we've raised the threshold to a point where I think we may, we may suffer the consequences later on. A genocide from a very technical point of view and a very broad definition is, is the 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 killing of people large numbers of people with the aim or intention to annihilate the group now that of course in a, in a political discussion you could say that legally that that means something else mm. but we can't say if it turns out and if they find factually that the state of israel does not intend to destroy the entire people of palestine does that mean that we okay with what they did for the last since 1948? Of course not. And that's the danger with people mix politics, law, and Akeda. And you have this, the, the, the storm of confusion that, that leads people astray. And that, that, that's, I think, something that we're going to have to explore further as, as this discussion takes place. Jazakullah khairan, Yusuf. You know, that uh, when I spoke about it, I'm, I think I'm a part 24 already, and I look at the ICJ's uh, preliminary findings, and it's nothing that I haven't said before. And I mean, that is just me, that I told the people this might happen, and this is what they're going to deduce, and this is what they're going to say. And then you have a guy like uh, Balema coming all out, guns blazing, and he started this, you know, he actually called for jihad. And shortly after that, you, you found that the uh, South African government, they also lodged a complaint by the ICJ. So when I looked at it, I thought of it as uh, polytricking and uh, not politicking, you know, so I thought they're up to the old tricks again. But uh, what can we uh, expect? I mean, we've seen uh, the, 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 the uh, ruling or, or, or non-ruling that came from the ICJ now uh, in point order, you know. Uh, it's all things that uh, the public knew and uh, many, many speakers said before. So what credibility is there? Uh, it's more like a victory uh, for, for, for Israel because from there I haven't seen one one uh, ruling saying that they must stop the bombing, they must stop the killing, they must, uh, they're only saying protect civilians. But uh, carry on with your campaign. Hafiz uh, Feroz, if you can, uh, can uh, uh, explain to us, you know, uh, for me yeah, as a layperson. So, I mean, I think there is some uh, merit in uh, what Mufti Sab is saying. I just want to, Mufti just backtrack one thing. I want to add something to what Yusuf is saying. Yes. So, so when, 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 uh, when we look at war generally uh, as Muslims, 
and when and 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 when we look at whether wars are justified or not justified, uh, I think the question that Yusuf raises is well, what is your benchmark for determining whether a war is legitimate or not legitimate? Is it international law? Uh, international conventions like the Rome Statute and the Genocide Conventions, or is it the Quran and Sunnah? Because if you look at the Quran and Sunnah, the space for for jihad, obviously within whatever constraints there is, but the space for jihad uh, is is much more broader than what international law allows. So the Prophet Sallallahu for example, in uh, uh, in I think in the Battle of the Trench, right, or in or, or, or in, in one instance, sorry, in one instance against the Banu Nadir. He expelled the Yahud of Medina, the Jews of Medina, because they had trampled on the, on the niqab of a woman. And he declared jihad against them just for one individual. Uh, uh, and, and the Prophet and the Quran also mandates that you can make offensive jihad, not only jihad doesn't have to be defensive, jihad can be offensive. So you can uh, declare war in order simply to establish the law of Allah on the land which is something the UN conventions wouldn't allow. So, okay. I, so I think that's a very important point that Yusuf is raising, and, it, and one should ask the question, well, when we judge struggles, when we judge oppression, when we judge our response to oppression, what is the benchmark for our assessment of right and wrong? Uh, I just want to add that. So now coming to the, uh, the uh, present decision now, Mufsa, so let's yeah. read, let's, let me just uh, read out uh, and uh, what the South African legal team and purely from a secular perspective, I think the government got an A-team together and yes. they really did, from a secular perspective, they really did a, a, a great job uh, of articulating the case that South Africa presented to the, to the, uh, uh, to the court. Uh, and, and, and I think it was very thoroughly, thoroughly researched and very, very well articulated and presented. There's no question about that. But what did they ask for and what did the ICJ eventually give? Yes. So the first thing they asked for is that the state of Israel shall immediately suspend its military operations in and against Gaza. Number two, the state of Israel shall ensure that any military or irregular armed units which may be directed, supported or influenced by it, as well as any organization and persons which may be subject to its control, direction or influence, take no steps in furtherance of the military operation referred to in point one. So the first relief that they sought was for a ceasefire. Uh, that was actually prayers one and prayers two of the request that South Africa made to the court. Uh, and then there were certain general prayers that, the, uh, that South Africa uh, requested the court to give, like the state of Israel shall in accordance with its obligations under the convention in relation to the Palestinian people as a group protected by the convention desist from commission of any and all acts within the scope of Article 2, killing members of the group, causing bodily or mental harm, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction and imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, uh, that South Africa, uh, that uh, State of Israel shall in relation to Palestinians desist from and take all measures within its power, including the rescinding of relevant orders of restrictions and prohibitions to prevent the expulsion and forced displacement from their homes, the deprivation of access to adequate food, water, access to humanitarian assistance, including access to adequate fuel, shelter, clothes, hygiene and sanitation, medical supplies and assistance, and the destruction of Palestinian life in Gaza, the state of Israel in relation to Palestinians 
shall ensure that its military as well as any irregular armed units or individuals which may be directed, supported, or otherwise influenced by it in any organization and persons uh, uh, which may be subject to its control, direction, or influence do not commit any acts described in 405. So those are some of the, 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 the relief uh, that they sought. They also asked the court for uh, the State of Israel to take all measures to give effect to the order and on regular inter intervals to publish reports and to refrain from any action that shall ensure that no action is taken which may aggravate or extend the dispute. So, so that's the broad and very specific relief. So what they wanted was a ceasefire and what they wanted was specific, clear orders in relation to the blocking of humanitarian relief, access to blocking of access to water, food, uh, deprivation of forced displacements, uh, access to uh, hygiene, shelter, clothes, medical supplies, all of that. Very specific, broad-ranging orders in relation to humanitarian relief. So the first part was a ceasefire. The second part was very, very specific orders in relation to humanitarian relief. So what did the court actually give? Well, let's read out the order. The court said uh, in, in its provisional measures, the first thing, the State of Israel shall, in accordance with its obligations under the Convention, in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of this convention, in particular killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on, on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Then uh, the State of Israel shall ensure with immediate effect that its military does not commit any acts described in one above, then the State of Israel shall take all measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. Then the State of Israel shall take immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to address the adverse conditions of life faced by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. The State of Israel shall take effective measures to prevent the destruction and ensure the preservation of evidence relating to allegations of acts within the scope of Article 2 and 3 of the Convention. The State of Israel shall submit a report to the court on all measures taken to give effect to this order within one month as from the date of this order. So you immediately notice that the court did not grant the main relief sought by South Africa, which is to order a ceasefire. And the court did not yes. grant the specific detailed uh, forms of humanitarian relief that the South African government sought which would have prevented displacements, orders directed very specifically at access to adequate food and water, humanitarian assistance to clothes, fuel, shelter, hygiene, sanitation, medical supplies, and all of that. None of that is featured in the order. So at the end of the day, what you have is a very broad and a very vague order, yes. not a specific order, and an order that essentially tells Israel you can carry on with your war, you can carry on with your uh, with the war. It's premised then on the basis that this entire war and and uh, 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 that Israel has declared is therefore a legitimate war, and that you must do it in accordance with international law. Uh, so uh, that is that is far from far from what the order of uh, 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 the order that South Africa sought, the specific order. Uh, that South Africa uh, requested for a ceasefire. So basically they're saying, 
what we all know. Yes. Uh, carry on with your war, but do it in accordance with international law and the genocide conventions. That's all they say. So, and what is Israel has always been said, they say, well, we are complying with the genocide conventions. We are uh, complying. We make sure that whenever we attack, we ensure that our targets are military targets. We try and ensure the minimum uh, 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 harm to civilians. But they say, well, everything's a military target because, you know, Hamas hides everywhere. Yes. So it, it really has no practical effect for the war itself. And as I said, this order is not enforceable. So, so the only, if, if Israel doesn't do this, the UN must decide what measures it can take. Now, it can take measures. It can impose sanctions. It can do other measures. It can enforce this order through declaring war. But it'll never do it because the Security Council is uh, uh, controlled by the vetoing powers and the uh, America will veto. So at the end of the day, what 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 is this but a piece of paper that will not have any meaningful have any meaningful or practical effect on the ground for Palestinians, in my view? And I mean, look, it's a, it was a principal position, perhaps by South yes. Africa. Uh, it, it took it for various principal and political reasons, which we've canvassed. Uh, but at the end of the day, they didn't get what they sought. So, so, so that there are very uh, 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 big limitations to what the court granted. So, Hafiz, uh, I'm saying it will not be enforced. And uh, you also mentioned 30 days. They have 30, 30 days to comply. So, meaning for the next 30 days, uh, they can bomb them to smithereens. Like last night, uh, they bombed, they killed 20 people that were waiting in a line, queuing for food. And uh, those were innocent civilians. So, basically, the court said you can continue killing, but do it in a humane way that uh, complies with uh, international standards. So, uh, there's no jubilation, no, no victory for for South Africa, uh, let alone uh, our brothers and sisters in Palestine. And secondly, Netanyahu said that uh, uh, whatever the court uh, decides at the end of the day, we're going to go ahead and flatten Gaza and uh, remove them from, from their power. So he's, he's hell-bent on doing that. I think the listeners uh, should be aware. Look, the yes. order is immediate. The 30 days is, is, is for the submission of a report. So the order is immediately effective. The 30 days, uh, it doesn't suspend the orders, the general orders. Yeah. But but uh, uh, you're right. I mean, that's the problem. It, uh, this order uh, allows them to carry on. And whatever they do, they're simply going to say, well, it's collateral damage. Uh, and, and it, you know, uh, it's within the rules of international warfare that we're doing this. Or that these people are military targets. I mean... There's a very big debate in international law. What is a legitimate military target? And you must remember also, when South Africa uh, uh, proceeded with its case, and indeed, if you read the judgment of the International Court carefully, yes. it's premised on the fact that the attacks by Hamas were unjustified. Now, as a Muslim, one can't take that position. Exactly. Because one has to assess the Hamas attacks the initial attacks that gave rise to this current war within the context of the broader jihad. And from an Islamic perspective, I can't see any difference between those attacks and the attacks in the Battle of Badr, yes. where Prophet uh, and uh, attacked a caravan which was on its way to, I think, Syria. Uh, and, and, and that was a legitimate military target for them. So if you judge what Hamas did from an Islamic point of view, they were within their rights to wage this jihad in accordance with Islam. But if you judge what Hamas did 
at the commencement of this round of atroc- uh, of war yes. uh, and, re- and resistance, uh, by international law, then you're going to be forced to come to the conclusion that South Africa came to. And that's where you, you need to be careful, because one can't just assume that all international laws of war are consistent with the Sharia laws of war. Because if you study it carefully and get deeper into it, you'll find there's many, many differences yes. and, 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 and much more space for jihad. Uh, uh, for example, in, 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 in the laws of war, and Mufti, I'm talking of a, like a layman here, uh, uh, you can take captives uh, uh, in terms of the laws of war of Islam. You can't, uh, the, the law of taking captives under, under uh, inter- international law is not the same like Islam. Exactly. What you can do with captives uh, uh, in terms of the Sharia, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, Mufizab knows better. You can ransom them, you can free them, you can also execute captives in certain cases, according to the Quran. You, you, you got space. These things are not what you can do uh, in, in international law. You understand? So one can't assume that that this uh, uh, cause that the uh, that the South African government uh, uh, went about is an Islamic cause. It is a cause. That furthers their values. It is a cause that furthers uh, their human rights agenda, uh, their political, uh, 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 you know, agenda. And as, at some point of it, there may be a commonality with, uh, with, uh, you know, standing in solidarity with Muslims. At some point, there isn't. But if you look at it from a purely principle point of view, it's not an Islamic cause. It's a human rights, uh, secular, or a valued cause that they embarked upon with material differences. So one must one must uh, uh, bear in mind all of these limitations and all of these nuances when one, one analyzes what has happened. Gee, I just want to pose a question to uh, Yusuf. And uh, Yusuf, you will recall... Oh, I'm talking too much. Uh, no, 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 no. No, you're speaking about captives and Yusuf will recall that uh, one month before the so-called war started, uh, you know, we were having Thank a program you. and, uh, you know, a, a month before we started uh you know that uh i want to post this to yusuf we were in a juma program and i told them i just returned from palestine and as uh, soon we're coming for you people and captives will be taken so whether it is from tokyo whether it is from where jihad will, will be waged uh, wherever you know wherever the need be so this brings me to a point people take offense when we mention captives uh some person wrote to me also and i made a whole bayan about captives we are not apologists islam is islam the law of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is final in your hukmu illa li that uh, legislation only belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So how do we do, do we balance between Sharia versus a secular law uh, when we look at this, uh, at this Gaza uh, scenario being played out? Because people are uh, sort of torn between the two sides. Uh, me and uh, many others, we are promoting uh, Sharia. We're looking at it from a Sharia perspective and giving similar rulings. But then we are countermeasured by people who feel that, uh, uh, no, we can still have ta'amul, we can still have interaction with these people and uh, they are a higher authority they the international world court and uh, their ruling is final and binding and i see it as a paper body that only exists on paper that gets together when the need be like now and after this we won't hear uh, from them again so uh, yusuf if you would like to uh, elaborate on that please thanks for you, you know, you raise the key question for all Muslims in the world, and that really is, what is your identity? Uh, and and to answer that question, uh, if one has to be honest, we, we need to see 
from what prism we view events in the world. And if we view events from a prism outside of the deen, outside of, of the parameters of Islam, outside of the perspective and the priorities of Islam, then we are not being true to the identity we claim to have. Uh, then we simply are walking around with names. Then our minds have been polluted and colonized to a point where we've elevated foreign belief systems and elevated them to the point where we want them to dominate from the Islamic position. And that's really the danger of a secular political left perspective of the world. Now, your history, you would know that, that there are times when, when, our, when our enemies are the same and we cross paths and we have short alliances uh, to defeat a common purpose, a common enemy. Alhamdulillah, I, 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 look, I'm not, I'm not an expert in Sharia. That, that doesn't seem to me to be problematic. But it's when we subordinate our Aqeedah in the alliance when we subordinate our ultimate desire in the alliance that we do a disservice to the deen. Yes. When, when we think we're doing something good, but in fact what we're doing is we're undermining Islam. So, so this is why it's so important for Muslims, and especially Muslims in South Africa when they view the question of Palestine. Alhamdulillah, there's been a link historically with Muslims uh, in South Africa and Muslims in Palestine. The, the reasons for that are varied. Politically, on the political left, the reasons are clear. The revolutionary movements, uh, the PLO at the time, the IRA at the time, the ANC at the time, had alliances. They understood the world in, in, in their own specific secular way. That alliance is long-standing and that will continue. But what is problematic is when we say that we must silence our Islam, we must subordinate our Islam, and we must now take a perspective that ties in with some secular perspective, whether it's political left, whether it's legalese, whatever the situation is. Once we do that, we are damning our descendants to a life without Islam. Mm. Because when people start hearing what Sharia actually says, they become completely bamboozled, shocked. It's as if they've, they've lived in a different world. And that's simply because we haven't been expressing what Sharia says. So as an Ummah, my interest, and I'm going to suggest that the interest of all the Muslims around the world in South Africa must be really what's taking place between South Africa and whoever in the ICJ, that will run its course. Yes. If relief comes to the Ummah, they're through that, alhamdulillah, you know, all praise due to Allah. But what is our role? And we need to define our role. And our role can't be to hide behind secular governments and say, you're going to do the, our bidding in the international court. Because then we will be abdicating our responsibility as the, as the Ummah. Gee. Our role, we know. We know what our role is. And we need, to, we need to be crystal clear in expressing it. Our role is to fight the Dalimin. Our role is to support the Jihad. Our role is to support the Fitar. It has to happen. You can't run away from it. The Prophet in his hadith has, has indicated clearly that this will continue until the last days. Now, if we don't understand that, and if we try and hide away in some kind of uh, pseudo world of, of, of peace and everybody's okay, all we've done is we've just subordinated the truth. We can't find ourselves in a situation which is what we are doing at the moment of being so comfortable living under disbelief that we can't even imagine living under Sharia. Correct.
We can't even imagine taking the steps that Sharia enjoins upon us to take. We, we're too embarrassed for ourselves, we're too scared for ourselves. We've got to get out of that. And alhamdulillah, the 7th of October, 2023, is to me what changed everything in the, in the overall international context around that, around this conflict. Because that was an act of defensive jihad that showed kuwa, it showed power on the part of the Muslims, it eased the breast of the believers, it raised the desire for the liberation of the people, for the establishment of Islam, and it is only Islam that can bring justice. Yes. And I think we must be very clear about this, uh, Mufti. Definitely, definitely I agree. When we envisage a future, it cannot be anything but Islam. Because Rulam is disbelief. And you can't, you can't go for efficient Rulam over inefficient Rulam, which is what people like to do. We want to live under the kufr of Denmark because they, they, they trains are on time. And we don't want to live under the kufr of Africa because their trains are not on time. Hmm. That is not the test. The test is, are you living in disbelief? If you're living in disbelief, it's inherently unjust. You're oppressing your soul. And when you oppress your soul, it can only manifest in oppression to the body. It has to be unjust. It can't be. It's mutually exclusive. So we need to we need to inculcate in ourselves and in our in our children the desire to live under the banner of Islam because that is the banner that brings justice to the world. Nothing else. No two-state solution does, no Geneva Convention does, no genocide convention does. It is only the purity of the deen that does that. And and my, my appeal to the Ummah of those people listening is in, in understanding what's taking place in the world. We need to transform our perspective so that we take the actions that Allah will be pleased. Gee, Gene, I totally agree, uh, uh, Yusuf. You know that uh, it is a case of uh, Islam versus Kufr, Islam versus Tawhud. Uh, people are unaware what is Tawhud, you know. Anything that is ruled against the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is called a Tawhud. And uh, people became so happy with that, they became complacent. And, uh, uh, you know, people are telling me that uh, you are too outspoken in this war because you and the consequences will be that you will be uh, shaking the apple cart uh, you know and, and my response is simple that we have to advocate what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants so this has to do with Aqidah as well the people's uh, belief system uh, many of them it, it is incorrect uh, they're putting so much trust and faith in uh, a kafir kufr system and then hoping for victory from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Hafiz uh, Firosab if you'd uh, care to elaborate on that Yes, so Mustab, I think what you're raising is, is there a space for Muslims to engage in what we have called lawfare? Uh, you know, using uh, systems of law, like for example, we did uh, uh, during COVID times where we went to court to try and open the masjids. Yes. Uh, and we did with the Gaza docket. And we also asked uh, in this instance for the government to take steps against Israel using its secular law. So is there a space for it and where do we fit it in? So the first thing I want to say this, uh, is this, Mufsa. Our, our struggle as Muslims is on all fronts. The struggle again, uh, between light and darkness, haq and batil, belief and kufr is everywhere. It's within ourselves, it's in our homes, it's in the workplaces, it's in the media, it's in the markets. It's on a political front, it's on an international front, it is everywhere. 
So, so the position we've taken is that whatever tools you have at your disposal, you use to fight kufr and to make uh, the life of the zalimin uh, miserable and to yes. bring justice to raise the voice and plight to stand witness to zulm you use everything possible that you can uh, that, that you can use however what has happened with lawfare is that lawfare has been punted as a substitute to jihad in a similar manner as boycotting uh, uh, strategies have been used as a substitute for jihad. So if you look at some of the BDS writings, they support uh, uh, economic boycott of Israel, but they're completely against armed struggle yes. uh, uh, a, 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 as a matter of principle. So they view an economic boycott as a substitute for a, uh, an armed struggle or jihad, like some would view uh, going to court as a substitute for jihad and it cannot be a substitute for jihad you must use everything and it cannot be used to undermine the jihad the jihad is the primary means of fighting the zalimin and all of these other tools are modern tools tools of war that you use because the the world is really a battlefield against kufr and you use them to complement the jihad but never to undermine it there is a major difference between using the kufr structures to gain an advantage for the ummah and believing in them we are in a war and we must not become confused and seek refuge in our enemies they are not our saviors there is only one hut that is the law of allah azawajal no other law no other system can prevail. The problem with using other systems is that Muslims start believing in them and believing in, the, in them as a means to undermine the jihad, and that is the danger. We can use them for our advantage, but we cannot believe in them. We believe in the law of Allah, and if this distinction is not clear in the minds of the believers, then they start getting carried away and celebrating small legal victories uh, or small legal efforts and then uh, using it uh, in order to undermine the Mujahideen. And this is the great danger that we must guard against. Yes, so we're saying there is a space for lawfare. Uh, and, and, and we deliberated when we did the Gaza Dock in 2009. We really searched for some dalil. On what basis can we use the laws of uh, a kufr law to try and win or advance the cause of a Muslim. We just didn't jump into it. We looked for some delay. Uh, some of the ulama we asked at the time said, you're wasting your time. There's nothing in the sunnah like lawfare. Uh, 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 abandon it. You're not going to get any reward for your efforts. We, we, we looked at other opinions. And then we we, we drew on two examples, Mufti Sab. I don't know if this is right or wrong. You are Mufti. You can, uh, you can, I'm you listening. I'm all ears. So, so the first, the first delil we looked at is when, when, when the battle of the trench ended, the Prophet had to deal with the Banu Kureza. I think it was the Banu, Banu Kureza, right? Yes. Because they had committed treachery in the battle of the trench in, in, the, in Khanda. And when he had laid siege to their fort and captured all of their fortresses and all of their, uh, their people, then the question was, what do we do with them? And then he, one of the Sahaba, uh, uh, who, uh, who was previously a rabbi? I can't remember the Sahaba's name. I think it's Abdullah bin Salam. I'm not. No, no, correct. Yes, Abdullah bin Salam. G. Abdullah correct. bin Salam. So the Prophet also said, "I'm going to ask Abdullah bin Salam to render the verdict on what must be done." And he judged them based on the law of the Torah, because the law of the Torah prescribed execution 
for treachery and, and enslavement of the women and children. And he then applied, if I'm wrong, that's my understanding of the history. He actually applied the law of the Torah against the Jews uh, in that instance. I don't know if I'm right, Mr. Sapp, but that's one delir we looked at. Yes, uh, which, which, which he could do. He could do. I just want to interject. He could do because it, was, uh, uh, it wasn't contradictory to the laws of the Quran. So it was in perfect alignment with the laws of the Quran. And that's why Rasulullah did not uh, object to that. Right. So I think so. That's the one. One. The other evidence we use, and I must be careful how I express this example. We know. Uh, we know that magic is haram, and I'm. And I'm not saying. I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that any that Musa Salam performed magic. I'm not saying that uh, Musa Salam. But you remember that the Musa Salam had to expose the battle of the uh, Pharaoh and his systems, and the battle of his magicians. So there was the no, celebration. Yomuzina, which where everybody gathered to come and witness the um, uh, the magic of the magicians, and and this was used by Fir'aun to awe the people and to enslave them and to colonize their mind into believing that he is this uh, power who he ascribed a uh, 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 godship to himself. So Musa Salam went to this festival on Yomuzina. And he challenged the magicians in that festival. But of course, he didn't use magic. He used Huck. He used Huck. He didn't perform magic tricks. He used Huck because he had the help of Allah. But, but we found some dalil in the fact that, that this uh, festival was a place where he, uh, Musa salam used in order to expose uh, the duplicity of the Fir'aun and to expose his falsehood and to, uh, and, and to show that all of it is, was just an illusion. So we use these two examples to say, look, we, we, we find some space here in order to engage in lawfare. Uh, uh, it's a means of speaking out. It reaches the ears of the oppressor. For example, uh, when, we, when we did the Modi docket, uh, Modi actually uh, threatened to cancel his trip to South Africa. Uh, uh, and almost derailed the whole BRICS summit when we raised the Modi docket against Modi in order to uh, to raise a flag on the atrocities that he was committed. But we did it only, only, not because we had faith in the system, not because we thought a court would give, give us relief, but we found some strategic advantage in doing it because it was a means used a tool to be used to speak out a word of justice to the oppressor in his face, which will get to his attention far more effective than perhaps a march, and it would cause fear and stifle travel. So we found two of these advantages in, in raising the Modi docket, and we felt that using this advantage, these two advantages, is consistent with Sharia, so we can use it as a means towards an end, but never at the expense of the jihad in Kashmir. We'll never say because there's this avenue, we cannot fight the jihad and we, and, and we must undermine the mujahideen. So it was in this context that we did it. And we do it not because we believe in the truth of the law. We do it only where we find space for some consistency between the end, our end objectives, which is not to, to achieve justice in the court, 
uh, and Sharia objectives. And we also do it, Muftisab, lastly, to show that when you use institutions like this, you're not going to get ultimate justice. As this ICJ case uh, shown, it is a, it was a, an effort by South Africa. As I said, the lawyers did a fantastic job. I can commend them from uh, just witnessing it from a secular point of view. Their arguments were powerful. Their preparation. It was a ten and a, a ten out of ten case that they presented. But look at the end result. Is there justice to the Palestinian Palestinians? Did they order a ceasefire? They didn't order a ceasefire. So at the end of the uh, at the end of the day, you got a vague order, uh, which is unenforceable from a so-called international court, which is really a moral victory, nothing else, a, a partly moral victory. Because if you look at the Israeli lobby, they're saying, "Well, we won. The the court didn't order a ceasefire, and they're spinning it in that way." So you you can use lawfare also to expose the duplicity of their systems. And, and and I think that, that this is what our our uh, experience has taught us, that when we use lawfare and we ask the courts to prosecute the criminals when they're in their midst, they don't do nothing. And that shows that really they, the, these laws are not what they're meant to be. They're great on paper, but they have no police, no enforceability. And so we use lawfare not only to get strategic advantages, but sometimes to expose the duplicity of their system, as as this ICJ uh, ruling shows. So those are the advantages of lawfare that we have seen, and that's why we use and we, and we use lawfare. But never at the expense of believing the law. Never at the expense of the jihad. We believe the 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 struggle is on every front, in every home, in every space. Uh, and, and, and we must use all our tools at our disposal to fight Zulam, and that's where we find the space for lawfare. And I hope, perhaps, Mushab, I hope I try to uh, clarify it. I don't know if the Dalil is right or wrong, you can correct us. <laughs> but that's where, that's, that's where we, you know, uh, we, we found some evidence. I, I, like, I like the term warfare. Uh, in lawfare as well. So, uh, with regards to the dalil, uh, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Mastata'atum wa'iddu lahu min, uh, min quwatin wa ribatin khayni, mastata'atum, the verse, you know, that you have to prepare for them, you have to prepare for jihad, using any means uh, possible at your disposal, uh, according to your ability, your capability. Allah didn't ordain us to bring specific things to uh, to uh, to warfare. So, jihad will remain, as uh, Yusuf has cited earlier in the hadith, and uh, people should should understand that and the other day also i mentioned that uh, uh, we sh- should start weaponizing certain things uh, and i mentioned uh, salahuddin ayubi ta'ala, how he weaponized his voice first uh, by implementing uh, in uh, structuring madaris during those day- the days uh, to oust uh, the fatimi shia dynasty so everything can be weaponized a lawfare uh, is also a means of weaponizing in the fight the true fight uh, in the spirit of jihad so uh, regarding our closing comments I'll start with you, uh, Yusuf, uh, before we end up with, uh, with uh, Hafiz Abino. You know, uh, what would you like to tell the community out there regarding this uh, specific uh, case and uh, the cause of the Palestinians and also with regards uh, to jihad that will remain until Qiyamah G? I mean, I, I want to, to make this appeal, and that is our love for the Ummah must be universal. And and we cannot be silent when, when in India the Muslimin are being oppressed the way that they are. We cannot be silent when in China they're being oppressed as they are. 
we cannot be silent when in Syria they're being oppressed by Assad the way that they are. And we need to make a special effort that in times like this where certain conflicts take precedence understandably because of perhaps the intensity and volatility of the situation, that we always locate what we're doing in the context of the overall Ummah. Uh, that our, our bond is with the Muslimin all over the world. And the life of a Muslim all over the world is equal. And we must fight to preserve that life, to preserve the honor and the dignity of that life. And we must never make the mistake of believing that the states of disbelief and the institutions of disbelief will invite the Nasr of Allah. They will, it will never do that. What will invite the help of Allah is our commitment to establishing what he desires of us, which is to fight for his deed. Jazakallah so much uh, to you, Yusuf. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I know you have to move also. Allah grant you jazai khair, Allah protect you, Allah use you for the khidmat of deen. And uh, we've learned so much from you. So uh, may we implement what we've learned tonight. And uh, to our listeners out there, it is absolutely the truth that uh, Yusuf has spoken. There's the plight of the Indian people, the plight of the Kashmiri people. Uh, you know, Netanyahu himself called South Africa uh, hypocrites because uh, they didn't raise their voices uh, when uh, the uh, people of Syria were attacked the people of Sham. And I concur with him there that there our government government remains silent but uh, nevertheless Allah grant you the best in this world and in the next uh, Hafiz Firoz uh, sub that uh, your closing comments please uh, I, I can just only echo uh, what uh, Yusuf has said and, and I would appeal to people that uh, when you analyze world events right and wrong uh, efforts such as as these taken by uh, uh, you know uh, Kufar governments who are doing it for their own political reasons based on their own principles you come back and you analyze right and wrong not from their perspective not from their books but you analyze what is right and wrong from the perspective of the quran and the sunnah uh, 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 of the messenger wasalam, because our values uh, our right and wrong our alliances our allegiance our wallah and bara all comes from our deen and that is the source of our values, that is the source of our struggles, and that is the source of our analysis. And I think that when we analyze world events in relation to what's happening now, we should not lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, certain struggles uh, of secular or, or non-believing entities or organizations may coincide with our struggles. But there's a point in time where one has to recognize the material differences uh, between why they do things, why we do things, and we do things only for the pleasure of Allah, and we and we do and we strive to do things only in accordance with what Allah and His Messenger has commanded us to do. And if we find no evidence, no dalil in 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 in, in, in our deen for something, uh, then we should not do it. And if we find uh, we are being confronted by right and wrong, uh, uh, or we've been confronted by uh, problems uh, in, in, in our lives, we handle them in accordance with our faith. And I think that's the ultimate message that we hope uh, can come out of this talk, uh, using the specific example of this case, inshallah. Jazakallah khair for giving us the platform. Most welcome, Jazakallah khair, and to both of you, I echo 
exactly the same sentiments and uh, you know i pray that allah uh, awaken this ummah and uh, you know uh, imbibing us the spirit of uh, jihad again uh, the ability to, to take up arms and uh, to continue the struggle based upon the sunnah of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam to fight uh, these people on all fronts uh, and uh, we can never uh, ever you know uh, allow them uh, to slaughter us at uh, their convenience and uh, then run to a kafir court and beg the kuffar for mercy this was not the practice of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and neither the best of generations you can never imagine Sayyidina abu bakr run standing there uh, in uh, the hague and uh, begging the kuffar for for mercy and saving the Palestinian people that uh, Jazakumullah khairan to both of you may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve and uh, protect you until we uh, meet again and uh, to our esteemed listeners uh, what an informative show that uh, to join me next Wednesday inshallah on our medical files and uh, we will be discussing other issues as well wa ma tafiki la bilahi wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuhu